0: Hello. This is Statistically Insignificant, a podcast with slides that will fill the holes in your brain with even less useful material. My name is Tess, my pronouns are she and they, and I will be the statistical half of this evening's entertainment. The half with an actual sense of humour, it's Bart. Hi, Bart. Hey, how's it going? Um, I go by a he and him,
1: and since the last episode, I've gone to the pub and got a haircut. Usually I do a bit here, but I'm just proud of that fact.
0: <laughs> your mop will be decreased indeed we might, we might have to edit the uh, header in all the branding and things because it's got the huge <laughs> do on it
1: it was even bigger by the end
0: oh my god <laughs> did you have difficulty fitting into hats
1: uh yes but I don't really wear hats so that's fine
0: yeah fair enough <laughs> gotta get the deerstalker going <laughs> we've spent yeah, I'm holding Caulfield over here <laughs> We've spent the last few episodes talking about specific statistics and some ideas of what you would do with them, but we have yet to really address what stats is for as a whole. As such, this is going to be a bit of a philosophical episode because we're going to need to talk about how science works and how statistics relates to that. Statistics has three primary goals, the first of which is describing populations, usually using things like summary statistics, which we have met recently. The second of which is to quantify evidence, which is in support of or against a theory or hypothesis about something. We call this statistical inference. The third is to predict future behavior based on what we understand about the phenomenon in question.
1: Is there is there a clear line between quantifying evidence and predicting future behavior?
0: Yes and no. Uh, in the sense that to some extent there is because quanti- you're quantifying the evidence based on what you have observed. And yeah. then you want to say... Using that, what do we think we'll, ha- we'll see if it happens again? Predicting future behavior generally incorporates something like we change the value of one of our inputs. And then we ask, well, we haven't observed this exact value, but we've observed something in that area. So is it going to behave in a similar way? Oh, okay. Yeah. We've already discussed this use of statistics a bit in episode 6 on summary statistics, and also in episode 3 when we talked about the census. The intention with these is to give an overview of what you expect to see in the population for a given metric. Maybe it's the average size of a species of mammal, or a taxonomy of dog breeds, and what proportion of pets they represent. You can also get an idea of how different typical members of the population are from each other using measures of spread, which are also from episode six. These are called descriptive statistics because, shockingly, they're used to describe the population, right? They do run into problems in the statistical framework that you are using to quantify this stuff doesn't match the structure of the population. For example, In our census episode, we talked about the shortcomings of the Australian census when it comes to describing gender and even sex physiology, and also the complete lack of data to describe sexuality. Now let's talk about the second one, which is the statistical inference, which was the uh, quantifying evidence. This is the bit where we have to talk about how science works. Science is an effort to find the best, whatever that means, explanation of a phenomenon. Usually through a story we tell ourselves about the evidence we've collected for it. We also call this empiricism if you want to be technical on the language side. This is the aim regardless of whether you're doing anthropology or quantum mechanics hell literature studies arguably does this because it presents evidence in support of a particular understanding of the meaning of a text. I'm going to put a note in here that we sometime we will revisit in a bonus episode that maths is not a science and doesn't actually have this same structure. Statistics kind of sits between those two, It interfaces between the mathematics and its ways of quantifying stuff and the science which needs stuff to be quantified. So the role of stats in this relationship is to quantify evidence to give a framework for what it means to be the best explanation of evidence for a suitable type of evidence, and to provide tools for comparison between different explanations. I say suitable types of evidence because not all problems are quantifiable in this way. Anything that involves interpreting interpersonal meaning is immediately very hard to do in its own terms, and not really amenable to attaching numbers. It's pretty common for qualitative research to be too complex to apply statistical inference, this doesn't mean it's invalid it just means that stats is not a good tool for use in that like if you're looking at your literary research or even intricate uh, sociological anthropological anthropological research that is asking people about how they experience meaning and things like that it's very difficult to apply numbers to this and most of the time it's not even appropriate to do so what you can do with some of these uh, and this is fairly common if you have a mixture of uh, quantitative and qualitative stuff is if you asked a bunch of people about a similar experience you might count the number of people who describe it in the same way or a similar way and you'll have like a classification system for how they talk about their experiences. So you can apply a quantitative approach to that in the sense of you can say well roughly 20% of the people talked about it in this way whereas the other 80% had a different way of describing how they experienced the thing.
1: So all those new atheist guys in the mid 2000s were probably not justified in trying to use statistical evidence to disprove the power of prayer?
0: (laughs) Well, it, it is an interesting question for what you want to do. Because if you are saying that prayer does absolutely nothing, I don't think that's right. Prayer doesn't do what a lot of people claim it does. Prayer doesn't tend to cure people of cancer or things like that. But There's a very consistent history of people having religious experiences of some form. I, being myself an atheist, don't think that necessarily means that the supernatural exists, but it does mean that there is something in human experience which behaves in a similar way. So it's different kinds of evidence for different phenomena, I guess, and the explanation that you take to it matters. Certainly, I I think that trying to quantify the number of people cured of cancer and things like that by prayer, that would be a reasonable use of stats. But stats can't capture the other half of that. Yeah, for sure. Mm. There are two broad philosophical frameworks for inference. The first is called Frequenta statistics and is more widely used, has a longer history of use, and is probably what most people have been exposed to. The second, Bayesian statistics, has become more common in the past few decades because the methods that it tends to use require a lot of computing power and it's only very recently that that has been available. There are some differences that I'm not going to get to in this because they're technical or there's just too much time. But I think it's important to say that this isn't a case of one approach being wrong and the other being right. They're different but closely related toolkits which should be used as appropriate. So we're going to talk about the frequentists first. To a frequentist, the explanation that you are proposing for whatever you're looking at needs to have a really strong level of support in order to be considered better than another explanation which is usually that no effect is happening at all. Let's say that you are claiming that your company's fertilizer increases the yield of a crop. The evidence that you are using is that you grew the crop in a bunch of different fields, some with fertilizer and some without fertilizer, and then compared the yield from those two groups. So your competing hypotheses for these are what we call the null hypothesis, which is also written as capital H0, which is that the fertilizer had no effect. And your other hypothesis, which you call your alternative, which is uh, generally HA for alternative or H1 as opposed to H0, is that the fertilizer improved the yield. I have slightly hidden something in this, which is that no effect is not the only other thing that could be going on. Your fertilizer could detrimental, it could decrease the value of the yield. But usually when you are testing this within a frequentist hypothesis framework, your null hypothesis would be the change is like less than or equal to zero, so the yield either went down or stayed the same, and the fertilizer improved is the change is greater than zero, it's positive, it increased the yield. But we only really check at this point here. We are really interested in this bit, we want to know that the fertilizer works, and that it can be effective for use on farms or whatever. If it doesn't work or it's detrimental, those are kind of in the same class of, we don't want this to happen. It's, you know, that means that it's not an effective fertilizer. So we think about this within the context of something we can measure. So the fertilizer improves the yield, means you are increasing a number Which is the yield whereas if you say the fertilizer works that's a little bit less distinct and we really do want to state these hypotheses in the context of a number or something you can measure frequentists give really special status to the null hypothesis you demand an overwhelming amount of evidence in order to say that the null hypothesis doesn't happen if what you have actually observed in this case the difference between the yields in the fertilized crop and the unfertilized crop is so unlikely. If the fertilizer doesn't work, then we reject the null hypothesis. Maybe the fertilized crop was 50% higher than the unfertilized crop. That's probably enough evidence to say that the fertilizer works. But if it's only 5% bigger, that may or may not be sufficient. That may or may not be a big enough change on the yield to make it worth using the fertilizer.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: We have ways to quantify how likely or unlikely it is that if the fertilizer didn't work, the yield has changed. If the probability of the yield increasing when the fertilizer doesn't work is low enough, then we say, actually, this is evidence that the fertilizer works. This is every bit as unintuitive and confusing as it seems. We don't really talk about evidence for the alternative hypothesis that the fertilizer works. We more or less exclusively talk about evidence against the null hypothesis. It's very strange. (laughs) Testing hypotheses like this is the most conceptually difficult thing that I teach in introductory statistics. It's backwards from what people come in thinking. And the reasons for that are a deep skepticism of claims if you want to claim that something has happened, you need to provide evidence for that effect over a threshold which is, oh it's just chance, or maybe something else is going on. Particularly like with stuff like disease cures, for example, which are have historically been done more or less entirely within a frequentist framework. If you have somebody claiming that their medicine cures a disease, you want to be sure that that treatment works. What does sure look like? Well, they have to offer sufficiently improved outcomes compared to no treatment with the drug or like detrimental outcome that it is supporting evidence for people to use it. One of the biggest things that comes out of this is the idea that you have like the idea of a placebo effect or the idea of a control group which is the group that does not get the treatment that you're dealing with or whatever suite of treatments you're dealing with. And you have your treatment groups with get the fertilizer or the drug or whatever else. And that split and the idea of a double blind trial where you even the people like doing the research and analyzing the data don't know which group is which, that's really, really powerful. That has been extremely useful and extremely successful over the past hundred or so years that this framework has been in use. But there are a few limitations. What counts as enough evidence to reject the null hypothesis can be a fairly arbitrary threshold. Ideally, it's problem-specific. It's not treated as black and white. You look at a summation of the evidence in front of you to work out what's going on. In reality, there are common thresholds within a given field, and because a lot of people doing the research don't have extensive statistics training or consult with statisticians, they tend to use the available thresholds as given, black and white. In recent history, if your work was uh, considered, you know, supporting an alternative hypothesis, it was publishable. Whereas, if you were unable to provide enough evidence to overcome the null hypothesis, it wasn't publishable. This produces some, um, let's say, pathological incentives. If you've ever heard of p-hacking, that's the sort of thing which happens when you put researchers' jobs on the line requiring them to have publishable results, which has meant they have to prove, in quotation marks, the alternative hypothesis, not how that actually works as we discussed. They will then make poor decisions about their data in order to publish stuff. This is changing, depending on the field you're in, it's changing slower or faster. Basically, people are becoming aware of the fact that this produces bad science. It produces unreliable results, a really shitty working environment as well, and it's just generally not a good way to go about things. So within academic publishing, there is now a push to also publish the results that are not clear or fail to reject the null hypothesis. So if I'm testing a fertilizer or whatever and my results come back as, well, it's not a strong positive result, it's not enough to reject the null hypothesis, but there's a small effect there, that's still information, that's still data, and that should be published. But sometimes it's not. um, Would replicating research be published? Yes, but somebody has to do the replicating research for that to happen. Yeah. And the incentives within research is not to replicate. We, We make all kinds of claims about how... Our results should be replicable and ideally you could do as many replications within your own research, which means uh, you basically have as many test subjects as you can. But that's not the same thing as having three different separate studies run by independent people to do the same testing on the same thing.
1: I've heard about the replication crisis in um, in academia and, and science specifically, but I'm not actually sure
0: what the incentives driving it are. Okay, so the material conditions, because this is about material conditions, are to keep your job as a researcher, you have to put out publications on your work. To get published, you are better off to do original trials or original experiments or original surveys, which means it is not replicating someone else's work. And that's a big problem because you then have all of this pressure on people there are a few exceptions but all of this pressure on people to develop new stuff when the stuff that exists isn't as well tested as it should be and because like academics are under so much pressure to keep their jobs to keep publishing and i mean it's not even just to keep your jobs if you want to go for a promotion if you want to move to another job you have to have publications to do that and it's just brutal so when you have this system of publish or perish as it is known and within that publication structure you have these demands for original research that rejects null hypotheses whatever that looks like in your field you get really pathological behavior dream job if i had the resources and all the rest and the infras- and the like so- social infrastructure i would love to be involved with or run an organization whose only purpose was replicating studies. This would have to be like a massive international effort because there's so many different fields and so much stuff gets published all the time that this would be, like, on the order of the Large Hadron Collider to get anything reasonable. But it it's really important. We need something like this. We need a formal structure for replicating studies across a whole bunch of different uh, fields. Medicine generally does better than other places, but um, that's because they kind of have to. <laughs> yeah and one of the things you could do in in an institution like this is it provides a really good stepping stone for early career academics you come out of your phd and you go into something like this and you get a lot of experience doing rigorous research in your field in a way that may be more difficult to get if you go into a postdoc or something like that absolutely so uh dear listeners if one of you happens to rule the world and wants to give me this job by all means i will do it <laughs> um, I just want but, to be able. Yeah, that'll never happen. So if someone, <laughs> if someone <wants> to <laughs> help me out there, <laughs> give you a publishing deal, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so that is one of the limitations with the frequentist research. You need to have this null and alternative hypothesis set up. You have a privileged null hypothesis and what level of evidence is good enough is pretty arbitrary and difficult to really get a handle on. I'll do an episode sometime on p-hacking and p-values but they are as conceptually difficult as this because they're intimately involved with hypothesis testing and inference but considerably more mathematically technical, so they're a real pain in the ass to teach. The second major limitation on frequentist statistics is that if you have multiple competing explanations, this construction of a null and alternative hypothesis doesn't work. You're restricted to just two. More on that in a second. But I really do want to emphasize before we move on that frequentist stats is not bad or wrong. It has gotten us a really long way in the past century or so it will continue to be a really useful framework all over the place. It's just there are some things that it can't do and some situations where it's not the best way to go. For those, we're going to talk about Bayesian methods. When it comes to inference and hypothesis testing, this framework does not have a privileged null hypothesis that it gives special status to. Instead, You consider the different explanations that you are interested in, which may be just two if your fertilizer does or does not have an effect, and ask which is the most likely to have produced the result that you observe. It's a little more intuitive in that sense. I say, I have these explanations, I have something I've seen, what's the best explanation of that quite directly? It does also give a framework to quantify evidence and support, and the researcher can decide what the best explanation is given everything lined up in front of them. This is far more direct and easy to understand, but some of the maths can be considerably more difficult on the underlying side. And as mentioned, the computational cost can be way higher. There are ways to incorporate thresholds of evidence so you can recover basically the same decisions as you get from the Frequentist models. You also have more options if you want to go outside of the Frequentist 2 hypothesis system. I suspect that the next few decades are going to see a lot of changes in stats and therefore in science. As these different frameworks evolve and hopefully reconcile, I think there's a lot of power in both. It'll probably be a couple of generations of work, but I think that we're looking at a revolution in statistics, which will be better off for everybody.
1: So we're not purging the Bayesian re- revisionists.
0: <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> we're not cosmologists here. <laughs> We're not going to do the same bloodbath that happened in theoretical physicists when the string theorists took over. (laughs) So let's have an example of multiple hypotheses. This is going to be a bit artificial, because often when you are doing this setup, you have bigger explanatory models than a single effect that you are testing. But let's start simple. So imagine you're developing a treatment for disease. The three hypotheses you are interested in get numbered instead of being treated with no alternative. The first one is going to be the treatment makes the disease worse. We might put, you know, quotations around that one. Number two is the treatment has no effect. And number three would be that the treatment works and reduces the disease. Arguably, what you're interested in here is hypothesis three in comparison to a combination of two. As mentioned, this is a bit artificial but you may also care to distinguish harm from no effect among some of your test subjects if they have other conditions or whatever. You may also be willing to accept no clear effect or a working treatment, so a combination of H2 and H3, so long as it's not detrimental in order to continue testing and development. Yeah, right. You then do your analysis to which to work out which of these is the most likely explanation of what you observed, and say that's the best explanation of my evidence.
1: Do you lose some of the scepticism in that?
0: Like like as in uh, the high threshold of evidence yeah. required? Um, it depends on how you go about it. You can weight these in the sense that I can say um, I am going to require more strength of evidence in this last one in order to uh, say that the treatment has an effect, a positive yeah. effect. It's difficult to talk about that weighting without going into the nitty gritty of how this stuff is calculated because it does come down to you assign it a higher probability based on what you think going in. One of the real strengths with Bayesian methods is that you can incorporate a lot more of what we call prior knowledge uh, in order to get like better results that incorporate stuff you already know you might say something like well i've already seen drugs from this class have this impact so i am going to say going in i expect to see something a bit like this and then update that what you expect to see based on what you actually observe right yeah uh i am hiding a lot of maths in that description <laughs> sorry uh <laughs> But the way I think about it is that you can tell these models what you already know. That can give it something a little bit more to work with. Because if I've only got like 100 test subjects and 300 test subjects have already been run, I should be able to incorporate what I got out of those 300 somehow. Yeah, It may have more or less uh, information to give me, but I don't walk into this knowing nothing. Absolutely. And that's a real strength of these methods because it gives you an explicit framework to uh, say what you do and do not know going in. Right. It also gives you uh, a bit more of a quantification of your own uncertainty. Probability in Bayesian methods is a combination of stuff like measurement error, which we've talked about before, and also your ignorance. You can be very explicit that I don't know a hell of a lot about this, so I'm not going to put in prior information because I just right. don't have any. And then you say my ignorance is greater or I guess my knowledge is smaller. Either way, right? I like that. I think that's a really useful way to go. It is much harder, in many contexts, impossible to do that in a frequentist framework. Yeah. But if you come in and you know nothing and you say, I don't have any expectations on what this is going to look like, the results from Bayesian methods and frequentist methods are very, very similar. Yes. The interpretation is a little bit different, but the numbers coming out are pretty much the same in typical undergraduate stats at the moment it's mostly frequentist stuff uh you you might see a couple of bayesian subjects in your undergrad degree if you do that but it's growing in use in like well spaces like biology so my current research in ecology is based on bayesian methods it's been a bit of a learning curve because i've never done them before <laughs> once we have an explanation that we are happy with for a phenomenon We want to use it to work out what's going to happen going forward so this is our prediction this might be predicting the weather based on historical records from a location and a model for weather behavior using the current conditions or you're trying to determine the impact that some level of vaccine rollout will have on disease transmission during a pandemic a lot of this like prediction modeling is being shown to people who will never have seen it before because of the pandemic. Your, your average person on the street doesn't really know what to do with the information and it's not very typically very well explained. In these cases, not only does stats furnish you with predictions, ideally it should be able to quantify how uncertain those predictions are so you can plan contingencies. You may well ask for an expected thing, so the average result, and also the worst case scenario. Climate change modeling tends to do this a lot. You'll get like average predicted result for what two degrees of warming would look like and then catastrophic results of two degrees of warming because you don't know what's actually gonna happen. You're projecting forward into unmeasured data. Another example that most people will have seen of this is voter polling. A question like, if an election was run today, who would you vote for? Projects from a sample of roughly a thousand more or less to a result of an election which would involve many millions of people. The error margins on this sort of thing, and these are like the voter polls that get reported in the Australian and the Guardian and that sort of thing, are usually about two percent. What this means is that if you have two parties and one party is polling at 51 percent and the other party is polling at 49 percent, these are actually indistinguishable Because that 2% error of margin means that the 51% actually looks like 49, which is 51 minus 2, to 53%. While this 49 looks like 47% to 51. You can't really tell the difference between these two based on that 2% margin of error. It's also
1: kind of irrelevant because um, like, we don't have a system where if you just get the most votes as a party, you will win. It's based on breakdowns in seats or in the Senate, like, proportions.
0: Yeah. So the Australian system is a little bit more um, intricate than this. American presidential elections, also a little bit more intricate, despite the fact that they're not sold that way. But you can do this within a particular seat. Yeah. In which case you you would be looking at a 1,000 people to represent, like, I don't know, 50,000 or whatever the seat size in Australia is. And that can be a little bit more accurate. On a national scale, what you're typically trying to distinguish is, like, one party might have 49.5% support and the other party might have 50.5% support. You can't distinguish these two numbers with a sample of 1,000 people and a margin error of 2%. Absolutely. You just can't do that. So... It's always a bit frustrating as a statistician to see breathless reporting on opinion polls and voter polls using these sorts of numbers because it just doesn't work like that. This also gets considerably more complex in Australia where you have multiple parties, but polling companies will still project that out to a two party preferred number based on assumed preference allocation. So you will have your two party preferred Labour and Liberal. But you've got maybe five or so other parties which also have had this question asked of them and have given estimates for the votes in those smaller things each of these numbers has approximately two percent error if you combine them the error gads up and it gets much bigger so your margin of error on your like two party preferred could be four or five percent rather than two percent yeah and one of the reasons that polling in Australia has been pretty unreliable over the past, let's say, decade, is because it looks like the polling companies haven't properly accounted for this error. Yeah, which is frustrating.
1: <laughs> but wouldn't you be asked the que- Wouldn't you be asked your preferences with that question?
0: I don't know. I've never been polled like this. I don't think so. And because this is usually a one-question thing, so that they can get it out of the way as quickly as possible. If you're just asked this question, then you would say probably a party or a member. Yeah, true. That's not really a preference allocation.
1: Yeah. yeah. They have to work on the assumption that Greens voters will preference Labor above Liberal or One Nation voters will preference Liberal above Labor or whatever.
0: Yeah. So they have a model for preference allocation. It's not necessarily quite that distinct. It may be, well, about 80% of Greens voters will preference Labor. So there can be a little bit more complexity to it, but that estimation of 80% of Greens voters will preference Labour also has a margin of error, <laughs> right? Every number that they are using has a margin of error and they are not, if they are still quoting this 2% for two-party preferred, that's not right. Yeah. like There's no way that in a in a survey of 1,000 people you would have 2% error when you're doing those computations, when you're combining things together. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, right. So there are a couple of ways that you can account for this. You can get a larger sample size. That can be like that's expensive. And it can be like the impact on the margin of error may diminish with your sample size growing. Like if you double your sample size, so if you go from 1000 to 2000, you'll have so much impact on your uh, margin of error. Yeah. But if you add another 1000 on top of that, you would have the same size impact as with the 1000 in the middle sampling is a weird and complex thing as we discussed actually (laughs) but in general like voter polling is a lot more complex than it's usually presented to be and uh you also have problems with sampling error so what the most famous case of this was an american election i can't remember which because i didn't research this one before doing this episode which um the opinion polls called up some number of people from a sampling frame which was biased towards one party and so they got a bad estimate uh, because that sampling frame was biased and the other guy won the election. Australia's had some stuff like that, but it's not clear if it's sampling error uh, or problems like this with the error margins.
1: Also, people love lying to pollsters. It's fun.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not surprised in the slightest if you've been interrupted in the middle of something, it's some decade going, Oh, which of these dumb asses do you want to vote for? (laughs) Like, of course you're going to lie to them. I understand that entirely. Especially if it's news poll. Screw them. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So those are our three main threads of statistics. Describing a population, testing explanations of what you see, and predicting what will happen in the future. Now, it's time for the mailbag. We have here an article from the Melbourne Age. Melbourne city residents face travel restrictions due to outdated data. This is about how COVID rules around travel for parts of Melbourne are flawed because they are based on population data prior to the pandemic. What happened was you had a lot of international students and migrant workers living in these areas who now don't because they've been locked out of the country for so long or had to go home because there was no financial support and our government was more than happy to let them starve. This is an interesting example where prediction hasn't worked. The government predicted the population at the current time, October 2021, based on data from June, 2019. In this particular case, it means it looks like a smaller percentage of the population is vaccinated than actually have been. We're looking at the suburb of Melbourne for this, which in 2019 was estimated to have 168,000, roughly 250 residents. And in October, 2021, we observed 113,400 doubly vaccinated people. If we treat this as a percentage, what we get is 113,400 divided by 168,250. We times that by 100 to give a percentage, which gives us 67.4%. But the estimates of how many fewer people are in Melbourne suburb is maybe 30,000 or so if we think about our actual population here, we could estimate that as 140,000, because we don't know, we don't have better data at this point. This gives us a vaccination percentage of 113,400 divided by 140,000 times by 100, which is 81%. So if you have thresholds for going out to drinks or whatever else based on an 80% vaccination rate, this suburb has met that threshold. It just doesn't look like it has because we're using this estimate based on older data. You're a bit stuffed if you live there because it's not easy for the person on the street to go to the government and say, you have bad data. Hopefully, now that this has been noticed, the Australian Bureau of Statistics will be able to provide an updated population estimate, but uh, I don't know at time of recording if that has happened. So the other data sets that you might use are like the recent census that was done this. They could take it as a priority and rush the population count on the suburbs in these areas in order to get a more accurate statistic. They would have
1: statistics on things that would drive people away from the suburbs in this case, though, wouldn't they? Like they would have statistics on how many international students would are there. Yeah, or so they? they can
0: they can go to to the universities and say, hey, how many fewer students do you have, and like where are they living and things like that. But this June twenty nineteen data is not census data; it's another. Um, I can't remember what survey they used to estimate it, but uh it was a survey done then and they have not done that same survey this year i think it's less frequent than that so they need other data sources and there are ways of combining things like the latest census data which would be the most accurate way to go about it uh with university records with migration information and things like that you can do better than has been done it just might take a bit of time and work to get there right right So this is a bit of a warning, that uh, periods of upheaval can provide some surprising issues with the relationship between statistics and governance. Uh, A a lot of the time, uh, if you have sufficient upheaval, governance and estimating stats is not your biggest concern. Like areas undergoing civil war and things like that don't tend to have a functioning stats department at the time. But if you do still have a functioning government, stuff like this can slip through the cracks. And if you don't have people paying attention and going, that seems a little bit odd, the paranoia is functioning properly, then people wind up really screwed over. That's everything we have for today. If you, dear listener, would like to send us an article, a horrible graphic, or some statistic that you have seen, you can email it to us, uh, pod at protonmail.ch, drop us a line on Twitter, these things are in the description. We also now have a Patreon. We will be recording a very first bonus episode in the near future and we will be putting it up there. The uh, higher tiers also get access to episodes early because we have a very extended production schedule and tend to record these about five weeks before they're released. So if you want to get a little bit faster and a little bit more, please go sign up for our Patreon today. But thank you so very much.
1: Thank you very much for taking me through it.
0: Yeah, and I'll talk to you next time.
1: Speak to you then.